Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on May 2nd, 2021, during our Sunday morning service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 10.30 a.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.45 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. What should be the priorities of a healthy church? What should be our priorities? In fact, we could say, what, I- what are the priorities of a healthy church? Because if these aren't our priorities, we're not going to be a healthy church. Some churches look healthy on the outside, just like some people look healthy on the outside. Uh, but looks can be deceiving. Now, when we talk about priorities, we're not talking about values. A value is different than a priority. A priority is how you achieve the values that you've set. For example, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife looked at me and said, you're looking a little jaundiced. I, I think you need to get some blood work done. And, of course, you know, my aversion to all things uh, needles, uh, I didn't think I needed to go get any blood work done. But uh, I, I said, honey, I don't. I don't think I look jaundiced, and just, well, you, I think you do, and I, I want you to get some blood work. Well, sure enough, I, my liver enzymes were all out of whack, and I realized, uh, I got scared, and I realized I needed to make some changes. So the value that I had was I got to get healthy. The priorities that I had to set in order to achieve that goal and to get my blood pressure down and to get my cholesterol under control and to get my liver back in shape, uh, that involved uh, the things that I ate, That involved uh, prioritizing uh, exercise, prioritizing other things that came alongside. So the priorities were there to help me to achieve that value, that goal. We have some values as a church. We have some goals that God has set for us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're told that the whole duty of man can be summarized in two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. Those should be the values that we have as a church to bring glory and honor to God and to be more obedient to him, to become more like him. Paul said it this way in the New Testament to the church, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, this is is the goal of my life. These are the things I value. I value Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. I value Jesus and becoming more obedient to Jesus. Those are the values. But how we achieve that in our life, if we don't have the right priorities set, those are just words. If we don't set the right priorities. And so the question I have to ask myself as an individual, the question I have to ask myself as a father leading a a family, the question I need to ask myself as a pastor, uh, as as your pastor of this church, Are the things that we claim to value, are the things that I claim to value reflected in how we spend our time, in how we prioritize? Do my pursuits match my priorities? And are my priorities achieving the values that I've set? Today, every day, we have 24 hours, each of us. We have 1,440 minutes We can spend those minutes 
We can invest those minutes. We can waste those minutes. But make no mistake, we all have the same amount of time every day. If you're going to live all day, and hopefully we'll all make it to the end of the day today, we will have done so over a course of 24 hours, 1,440 minutes. So are we prioritizing according to our values, or are we a slave to distractions, a slave to our schedules? a slave to things that really don't help us to get any closer to the things we claim to value. There was a seminary professor a few years ago, a number of years ago actually now. He had a class of 15 students, all of which were going to be going into vocational ministry and as a, uh, I guess it was an end of the year project for him, it was a lesson for the students He, as the students showed up near the end of the semester, showed up for class, he handed them each an envelope. He told them not to tell anyone else what was in the envelope, but really all he had done was divide the class into three groups of five. And to five of the students, he gave these instructions. You must get to the other side of campus. It was a small Christian school, small Christian campus. He said, you have 15 minutes to get to the other side of campus, and if you don't make it, your grade will be impacted by your inability to get there. That's what he gave to the first set of five. To the second set of five, he gave a different set of instructions. He said, you have 45 minutes. You have till the end of class to get to the other side of campus to check in with me over there. So you don't have to rush, but don't waste your time either because you need to be there by the end of class to get credit for this class. To the other group, he said, the other five, he said, sometime before the end of today, five o'clock, you can be there. You just have to be there. Just be there by five o'clock because I'm leaving at five. So make sure by five o'clock you've gotten to the other end of campus. Now, what he didn't tell any of the students was that he had gone to the drama program at a neighboring campus, a different school a secular school where they had a drama program, and he had talked to those, some of those students, and he had recruited them for a little project. And so, because this was a small campus, he was able to do this. He had different students from this other school who were pretending to be in crisis, pretending to have a variety of different crises going on in their life. And he wanted to see what his 15 ministry students, who were going to be doing ministry for vocation for their calling, what they were going to do and how they were going to respond. And so it was an experiment for him, but a lesson for them. And what do you think happened? The five students who had been told you have 15 minutes, all of them got there in 15 minutes. None of them stopped to help any of those people that they thought were in need. Five of them that were told they had 45 minutes. Well, a couple of the five, I think you know, two, maybe, maybe three, they stopped. The others didn't. But the group that were told you have till five o'clock, they all stopped. They all stopped because they didn't have the pressure of thinking my grade's going to be changed, my grade's going to be impacted. And so they were able to see what was around them. 
and they were able to respond. And it was a lesson for the students, and it's a lesson for us as well. If we have the right priorities, we're going to be able to see needs, we're going to be able to respond to needs, but if our priorities are wrong, we're not going to accomplish the values that we think that we have, that we've set for ourselves, or more importantly, that God has set for us in his word. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 20, and we're preparing ourselves, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll begin, of course, you never know what a week will bring, as as we saw just again uh, last week, but we're preparing to study the book of Ephesians together. We're going to spend a long time together going through the book of Ephesians, such a critical book, but I, I want you, before we do that, to understand why this church is so critical, and some things that Paul had already ingrained into this church that were foundational uh, to what this church thought and how they functioned. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 19 the clash of kingdoms that occurred when this growing church where God was doing a great revival, people were getting saved, they were showing their salvation uh, in their uh, uh, change of lifestyle, they were forsaking Uh, the wicked things that had dominated their life. And so he was there for three years. He had already been preparing to leave. He didn't leave because of the riot that took place. He was already preparing to leave. He knew that his ministry was coming to to an end. But after the riot, Paul left Ephesus after three years of faithful ministry there and fruitful ministry there. And he begins to do some other things. But now, in this is a year later, Uh, A year has passed between chapter 19 and the middle of chapter 20. And while traveling to Jerusalem in order to get there uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, Paul doesn't have time on his schedule because he has to get to Jerusalem. God has called him to get to Jerusalem. He needs to be there by Pentecost because God has placed something in his heart that he needs to accomplish. And so he has this goal, and so his priority is, I have to get there. But he also has a message for this church. And so he can't get to Ephesus and he can't get the entire church to meet him en route to Jerusalem. And so what he does is he sends a message to the elders of Ephesus and he asks them to come and meet him in Miletus. And so now we're in A.D. 57. This is a year after his, uh, roughly, these dates are, uh, are a little bit debated, but, but very close, roughly A.D. 57, Paul is meeting in Miletus, the Ephesus elders, and he has a very important message for them. Now, I want you to hear what the message is, and then I want to make a few comments about the message before we unpack it together. So let's pick it up. Acts chapter 20, verse 15, Luke writes, and we, Luke was with Paul at this time, he says, we sailed thence and came the next day over against uh, Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos, tarried at um, uh, Miletus. We came to Miletus, verse 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, here's the message, here's his farewell message to these elders. He says, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia, four years ago I came uh, and really began my, my long-term ministry. He actually came to 
Ephesus and visited there, remember, uh, a short period of time before that. But three years, uh, he says, listen, you know, back in those days when I first came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all the seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to both the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, pay attention to this, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, pay attention to this too, he says, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. Paul says, I'm not going to be here anymore to help you. I'm not going to be around anymore to instruct you personally. So take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. And to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let me give you a brief overview of what we have just read. There are five main themes that Paul wanted to cover with these Ephesian elders. He knew that he would not see any of these guys again. God told him that. We see that in verses 25 through 38. And so his farewell address to them, his farewell sermon, is going to cover five areas that are critical to the health and the growth of their church and of every church, including our church. So we see five things. We see Paul talking about the ministers of the church, the ministers that the Holy Spirit has appointed, here, here termed elders. Uh, these are described as having... Uh, the responsibility of shepherding the church. The Greek word for shepherd translates into English as pastor. We, we pastor the church and function as overseers of the church. We also see him stress the manual for the church, which is, of course, the scriptures. Here he calls the scriptures the word of his grace, the whole counsel of God. 
We also see the main message of the church, which is the gospel of grace. This is the message that the church is to be communicating, the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Savior and Son of God. Paul also talks, though, about the menace to the church, corrupt doctrine taught or allowed by corrupt or lazy leaders. And then, fifthly, he emphasizes the mercy of the church. Now, when we talk about the word mercy, mercy in the Bible means a lot more than we tend to think of the word mercy in English. When we hear the word mercy, and, and some of us have, have taught this, I've taught this incorrectly in the past, mercy is much more than withholding judgment from somebody. We think of mercy in 21st century America as what you don't do. We withhold judgment for somebody who deserves it. But understand that mercy in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, mercy is much more than that. Mercy is not passive in Scripture. Mercy is active. Mercy is what you give, not what you withhold. Mercy really in Scripture is strength flowing to weakness. It's when those who have give to those who have not, whether that would be financial, whether that would be physical, however, whatever that would be, emotional, when those who have support those who have not, that is the biblical idea of mercy. And so Paul talks about the mercy of church here, serving God, serving others, serving selflessly, humbly, and giving in response to needs. These are the main themes. Now, we're not going to unpack these sequentially because Paul doesn't give them to these elders sequentially. He weaves them together. But these, make no mistake, these five things are critical to setting the priorities of the church, recognizing these five areas. Now, let me say one quick thing about the term elders here. We're not going to do an entire sermon on this. That's not our goal for today. We'll address this issue uh, of pastors and uh, the responsibility of pastors when we get into Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll, we'll come back to this. But the term elders can be very divisive and, and controversial. There's a, a great debate, if you're Scottish, a great debate over... Um, my wife, by the way, has asked me to do an entire message at some point with, a, with an accent, but I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I think she was kidding, but um, I like to, to keep my son and wife entertained at home. Uh, there's a great debate over the office of elder and what it means, and churches divide over this, churches fight over this. Uh, some people think that if you don't have an elder board, that you're not functioning as a New Testament church. And so this can be a, a really divisive issue. And we're not going to get into that debate this morning. But let me just say this. We really don't know very much from the scriptures, from the scriptures regarding how the early church was structured and how it functioned. Uh, we don't know about the size of the churches. We don't know... Uh, about how exactly the leadership was structured, other than we know that God instituted this office of elder, which we today now in our, in our church emphasize the term pastor, which is the term that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, the pastor-teacher. 
uh, as the shepherd or the overseer of the church. Now remember, we're in AD 57. The church is less than 30 years old. Whenever the New Testament addresses an individual city, an individual group of, uh, of Christians in a city, it's always the church of that particular city. The church of Ephesus. We see this, by the way, in Revelation 2-3. When Jesus speaks to the Christians in Ephesus, he just calls them to the church of Ephesus. When Jesus speaks to the church at uh, uh, Pergamum, the, to the church at Pergamum. When Jesus speaks to the Christians in Laodicea, the church of Laodicea. We don't know that all of those Christians, in fact, it's very unlikely that all of those Christians were all squeezed together in one home at the same time or in one place at the same time. So we don't know exactly how they were structured, whether there were um, fellowships that were meeting under different elders, and they were just kind of communally referred to as the church of. But remember, this is before denominations. This is before the church has really had any major schisms or divisions. And so uh, we don't know that every church, in terms of every fellowship, every local fellowship had a Uh, how many pastors they had, whether they had one or whether they had seven or whether they had many. We don't know that. A lot of people want uh, to say that the Bible is more definitive on that than it actually is. But the big idea here is to understand that these elders are described as pastoring and as overseeing their churches. Now, we do know that throughout the New Testament, there were times, uh, whether it was either the apostle that appointed them or whether they were approved by an apostle, that churches had a primary teacher, a primary leader. We see that in First and Second Timothy. We see that in the book of Titus, where Timothy was the leader appointed by Paul over the church at Ephesus for a period of time, where Titus was uh, appointed as the particular leader in Crete over the fellowships that were being started there. And so we see Paul and Barnabas in uh, Acts. We see them setting up various... Uh, churches and putting elders plural over those churches but again we don't know how large they were or how big they were and so we're not going to get into the whole uh, idea of of how many pastors should a church have our our church uh, today has right now two pastors myself and pastor nick Um, i'm called the senior pastor really i'm the teaching pastor the lead pastor the senior pastor of first peter chapter five is really jesus jesus is the chief shepherd of every church. And so the head of the church is Jesus Christ. The, the uh, supreme authority of every church is Jesus Christ. But these elders, these pastors were gathered together because they were the ones responsible for leading. They were the ones responsible for oversight. And so I just want you to understand that as we talk about the priorities, setting the priorities of a healthy church. A lot of this responsibility does fall on uh, our shoulders as pastors But it's not exclusively our responsibility because the Bible teaches us that pastors lead by teaching and lead by example. But again, the authority does not rest in any pastor. The authority rests in Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. And so the word of God is our authority because the word of God is what God wrote. And that is the authority that is over me and over Pastor Nick and over all of us. And so I just want you to remember that as we begin to look at some key applications of this farewell sermon. Now, we've read this sermon. I want you to see it again, though, in three 
divisions. There are three ways, three parts that Paul breaks this sermon down into. The first part has to do with following Paul's example. And here's the big idea of verses um, 18 through 25. Here's the big idea. This should be the priority of every pastor because this should be the priority of every member. Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. This should be my priority as not just a pastor, but as a Christian. And Paul uses himself as the example so that these pastors will themselves be an example. And why is a pastor to be the example? So that the members will have an example that they can follow, that they can set over their families and in their places of work or school or their home. All of us are called to be an example. Now, practicing what you preach comes down in these verses to five key commitments. Five key commitments that the Apostle Paul made that he wants these men to make as well. And here's the first commitment. If I'm going to practice what I preach, I, number one, have to commit to serve the Lord, not men. I have to make a commitment today that I am not serving you primarily. I serve the Lord by serving you, but as Gigi tells me uh, virtually every Sunday as we're coming to church, DJ, audience of one. She reminds me every week, I thank God for a godly wife, she reminds me every week, DJ, you have an audience of one. Your boss is the Lord. Your king is Jesus Christ. And so I have to make a commitment to serve the Lord. Look again at verses 18 and 19 where Paul says, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 18. He says, you know what manner I have been with you. You know, you saw me. You saw my example. And here's what I did as an example. I served the Lord with humility of mind and with tears and temptations, which befell me because of the persecution he was he was experiencing so if you're going to serve the lord you need to do it honestly and openly you need to do it honestly and openly now that doesn't mean that you have to dare uh, uh, air your dirty laundry on facebook every day okay that doesn't mean that everybody needs to know everything about you but it does mean that there should be some transparency and some openness that you are accessible to people in the things that you are going through the things that you have learned that you are open and that you are honest and above all, that you are humble. That you are humble. Humility is not thinking low of yourself. It is about thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. It is about deflecting all the glory to Jesus Christ. And here's the promise that we have in James chapter 4. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when I submit myself to God, and when I, whatever I do, I'm doing it for His glory, not for my glory. And by the way, that takes a lot of commitment. Because all of us are wired to want glory. And there's a place for that. There's a place for affirmation. There's a place for praise. But the primary seat belongs to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. 
The primary praise needs to go to Jesus. And so I need to humble myself. And listen, humility is the only virtue that is going to enable you to endure tears and temptations. Because there's a lot of things in life that are going to come at you that are going to bring tears. And there's a lot of temptations and trials that you're going to face. And the only way that you're going to continue to serve God through that is if you're doing it humbly. And many times, trials are the test of that. I mean, I've experienced some challenges in ministry over the years uh, from people that I was trying to minister to, people that I was trying to minister with, and, and oftentimes those failures were my failures, but other times there were issues that came up that were placed on me, and I had to make a choice. Am I, do, am I really doing this for the Lord? Because if I'm doing this for the Lord, I'm going to shed those tears and keep going. I'm going to endure those trials and those temptations, and I'm going to keep serving. But if I'm doing it for me, if I'm doing it for, pray, for praise, I'm going to find out real quick when the praise turns off, when the glory stops getting thrown at me, I'm going to find out real quickly that that's really why I was doing it. And so Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1, you better make sure that you're living as a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. Because eventually you're going to have to make that choice. Paul says in Galatians 1, if I'm, if I'm pleasing man, I am no longer pleasing God. The only way you're going to endure tears and temptations is by making that commitment to serve the Lord, not serving men, humbling myself. You say, I don't deserve what, they, what they've done to me. I don't deserve what they've said to me. Well, are you doing it for them or are you doing it for the Lord? If you're doing it for them, you're going you're gonna to quit. But if you're doing it for the Lord, you're going to have the strength to keep going. Paul tells these pastors, you better make sure you're serving God. You're not serving the people that God has called you. Now, we do serve the people, but we serve them by uh, submitting ourselves to God, humbling ourselves to the Lord. Commit to serve the Lord, not men. We spent a, a number of weeks last summer unpacking 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. We did an entire series on, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul says, Titus 2, 7, In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, Sincerity. So commit to serve the Lord, not men. Number two, commit to study the scriptures thoroughly. Commit to study the scriptures thoroughly. We've hit on this uh, several times in this short introductory series. Paul preached house to house. Paul preached day and night. Paul preached publicly, privately, personally. Paul covered in three years the whole counsel of God and the application for me as a teacher and a student because guess what teachers are still students some of you teach Sunday school class Lord willing we're going to be starting here next month at the end of the month starting back in Sunday school we'll get you more details as that becomes more uh, as the concrete dries on those plans right uh, some of you teach for all of you who teach we're still students all of us are students and all of us have to be willing 
to do the work. And not just do the work in terms of how much we do, but in terms of what we're willing to study. Notice what Paul says here about teaching what is profitable. Verse 20. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you. What is profitable? Not just what is pleasing. Not what do I think I need to hear today. Not what will make me feel good today. But what will help me today? And there may be something that we cover today and you think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good on that. I didn't really need that today. Well, you might need it tomorrow. You might need it a year from now. So there are things in Scripture we think, well, that doesn't really apply to me right now or that doesn't apply to me anymore. Listen, it may apply to you down the street or God may be teaching you that because he's going to bring you in contact with somebody else who does need that today. And you're going to be able to help them, point them in the right direction in God's word. We need to be thorough in our commitment to studying God's word. Again, Lord willing, next week we're going to begin a study on the book of Ephesians. We're going to go verse by verse. Now, let me tell you, give you a couple reasons why we study the scriptures verse by verse and why I teach that way. Number one, that's how the Bible's written. I'm going to teach it the way that it's written. It's not written as a series of unrelated, disconnected bullet points. And so absolutely we do topical messages, absolutely we do topical messages, but the Bible is written to be read and to be understood verse by verse. It also forces us to cover some things that we don't think that we really need or that aren't as important to us. It forces us to cover some topics that are controversial. It forces us to cover some topics that we are trying to avoid. But there it is, and we're going to deal with it. Very easy when we set our priorities in the wrong way to that which is pleasing to us and not that which is profitable to us. But there is much in the Scripture. By the way, it also uh, helps you to understand if... um, God's word says something that's very convicting to you. That's that's not because uh, your wife sent me an email or your husband sent me an email and said, hey, can you preach on this on Sunday? Because uh, I think my spouse really needs to hear this. Or, you know, my kid would really benefit if you talked about this. You're going to know as we go through this every week that that we're talking about that particular subject because that's where we are in the text. And the pastor's not out to get you. The Holy Spirit might be out to get you, okay? But, and I'm sure he is, but the pastor is not. So we need to commit together to study the Scriptures thoroughly. That's so important if we're going to achieve the goals that God has set for us as a church. Commit to serve the Lord, not men. Commit to study the Scriptures thoroughly. And commit to preach the gospel of grace. The gospel of the grace of God. You are not saved in any way by anything that you do as a work. Nothing. We're going to spend a lot more time on this in Ephesians chapter 2. But just as a spoiler, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
but we're not saved by our works. This is the message of grace, that not only do you not have to earn it, you can't earn it. You can't deserve this. The message is that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's true of every single person in here. That doesn't mean that we've all sinned the same amount or that everybody else's sin is as bad as mine or my sin is better or worse. It's not what it means, but it means that we're all sinners and we all have the same need, which is forgiveness. We need a Savior. And there's one way that God has provided for us to have our sins forgiven, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ, came down to earth, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless, perfect life so that he could shed his blood as the only and all-sufficient payment for our sin. And then to prove that God the Father accepted that blood sacrifice for sin, on the third day he rose again, and he's alive. But we have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We have to recognize that we are sinners who need to be forgiven. And that's where repentance and faith come in. A lot of people want to preach the gospel and not talk about repentance. Paul wanted to make sure that we understood if you're not preaching about sin, then people don't know what they're being saved from. And if you don't know what Jesus saved you from, how can you really call him a savior? You have to deal with the problem. The problem is not just pain. The problem is not just brokenness. The problem is not just stress. All of that is a result of the problem. All of those are symptoms. But the cancer is sin. That's the issue that needs to be dealt with. And there's only one cure for that. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Shed for us. Victoriously applied to our life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to talk about sin. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. We repent by turning, by changing our mind, which is what the word means, by changing our mind from loving our sin, and we can't make ourselves sinless. We're, it's not that we stop sinning. We can't stop sinning. We still sin. We sin less once we're saved but we're not sinless yet but we turn from our sin and turn to God we change our mind which is repentance and we're persuaded which is what the word faith means to trust that Jesus Christ the only son of God loved me so much that even while I was yet a sinner he died for me he paid my sin debt he rose again from the dead and I can be forgiven I can be called a child of God, I can be given eternal life, eternal hope, and inheritance in the kingdom of God simply by faith. That's the only way we can receive it. That's the message of the gospel, and it's what we need to preach. Paul reminded these pastors, and if we pastors need reminded, we all need reminded. Amen? We all need reminded of that. When you get discouraged, when you feel that you are unlovable, when you feel that you have failed God so greatly that he could never forgive you, you need to turn your eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that God knew every sin you were going to commit before you did it, and he died for you anyways. And he loves you anyways. And he can save you. If you call on him, place your faith in him. Serve the Lord. Study the scriptures. 
preach the gospel. Commitment number four, pursue the Holy Spirit by faith. Pursue the leading of the Holy Spirit by faith. Notice what Paul says again in verses 22 through 24. He says, Behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. He says, listen, I know what my goal is. I know what my values are. I'm going to set my priorities according to that. Not what's convenient. Not the path of least resistance. But what is the Holy Spirit leading me to do? Now, we know what the Holy Spirit is leading all of us to do through the Word of God. That's absolute truth for everyone. We start there. What has God made clear to us is his will for all of us. And then once we've accepted that, and once we're applying that to our life and being obedient to that, then Paul says, listen, let me make it real personal. I don't know what tomorrow holds, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit's told me you're going to be persecuted. That's all I know. I know I'm going to face trials. I know tomorrow is going to be difficult. That's all the Holy Spirit has told me to know. Some of you are waiting to obey. Some of you are waiting to get involved. Some of you are waiting to do this or that because you're waiting for everything to to be so clear to you that you know it's going to be easy and you know that everything's going to fall into place and there's not going to be any challenge and there's not going to be any trial. And if you're waiting for that, you're going to wait forever. Somebody once said, there are seven days... In every week, and not one of them is someday. Someday I'll do this or that. Someday I'll get involved. Someday I'll serve. Someday I'll study. Someday I'll preach the gospel to somebody. When is the Holy Spirit entering into the equation? Are you asking Him through prayer? Are you asking Him through godly counsel? Proverbs tells us Proverbs 15 20 without counsel purposes are disappointed but in the multitude of counselors they are established if we're seeking godly counsel and we're praying sincerely to the Lord and we're studying his word we need to know that God is going to give us a peace when we need to go where we need to do what we need to do and so we need to commit to pursuing the leading of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives and pursuing the leading of the Holy Spirit by faith in the church, not just looking for the path of least resistance. Well, this is easy, therefore it must be God's will. There's a way that seems right to a man because it's easy, because it's affordable, because it brings me praise, because it makes me feel good. There's a way that seems right, but the end thereof is the way of death. So how is the Holy Spirit leading? And then... uh, Fifthly, we have to commit to a kingdom mindset. I'm not going to re-preach the message I preached two weeks ago. If you missed it, you can check it out on our podcast or, or on Facebook Live or on YouTube. You can look it up. But we talked about what it means to have a kingdom mindset. Let me just boil it down to just a few phrases. You need to be focused on the finish line. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom. And so you better serve him now, and you better be living for his return. Paul says, I, everywhere I went, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. I'm preaching that Jesus is king and he's coming back again. 
we need to commit to a kingdom mindset. Now, that's the first part of the message. The second part of the message we're going to cover very quickly. And the reason that we're going to cover it quickly is it's, it's specifically warnings given to pastors. Now, there's certainly some application here for all of us. And if, if this were a room of pastors, we would spend the entire message or, or an entire message on just this section because there are some things that are absolutely critical for those of us who God has called into ministry to understand. But there are also some truths that all of us can understand and apply and that all of us need to understand and apply in verses 28 through 31. So let me just talk for a second about heeding Paul's warning. There was a very critical warning that Paul gave to these pastors. He said, listen, follow my example, but make sure you're also, I'm not going to be here anymore. We're not going to talk anymore. So you need to heed this warning. And here's what it boils down to, verses 28 through 31. You guys better defend against deception. Now, again, there's application in this for all of us. But there are three things in particular that can deceive Christian leaders and as a consequence can deceive Christian congregations and Christian individuals. So let's highlight those three areas. Number one, the deception of privileged leadership. Look at verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I've seen this in my own life in the past because even even though I've only been your uh, lead pastor for a year now, I've been uh, involved vocationally and this is now the fifth church. Lord willing, this will be Uh, The last church uh, that God has called me to, that's our hope and prayer. Uh, But I've been over the course of uh, 20 plus years now, about 25 I think off the top of my head, uh, working at a number of different churches. And I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in my own ministry. I've seen this in many, many ministries, working and knowing, going to school with and knowing many, many pastors, the danger of entitlement, feeling entitled. My pulpit, my office, my church, my people, my Sunday school, my small group, my area of ministry. We, we build these bomb shelters. We get in, in a ministry and we want to own it and we don't want anyone else to disturb it or to challenge it. And so we, nobody else gets involved. And so we're not training anybody else. We're not sharing responsibility. It can become very easy. To feel privileged. But understand, as I've already said, pastors are called to lead, yes, but we lead with accountability. Christ leads as the authority. He is the head of the church. He is the senior pastor. If I dropped over today, this church would not be without a senior pastor because the chief shepherd, 1 Peter chapter 5, is Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd. You are his sheep. I am an under-shepherd. I, am, I have oversight, I have responsibility to feed you, to feed you what he has given me to feed you, not what I want to feed you, not what I want to talk about every week, but what God's word has for us. And, and certainly we seek the leading of the Holy Spirit in that and, and how God is leading us as pastors, as teachers, as Sunday school teachers, as uh, Bible study leaders, 
uh, how God is leading us to teach, but beware the privilege of leadership. Friend, I did not die for you. I would die for my wife. I would die for my son. I die for my sister. There's a real short list of people I would die for. Real short. I just be honest with you. I love you, but I ain't lining up to die for you. Jesus Christ died for you. He purchased this church with his own blood. Every church belongs to Jesus. He shed his blood for us. It's his church. And that is a great weight of responsibility that I bear, that every pastor should remember to bear. This is his church bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That's why James 3.1 says, hey, not many of you should be teachers <laughs> because you're going to stand in greater judgment for being a teacher. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.5, remember he wrote 1 Corinthians while at Ephesus ministering. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians while he was ministering in Ephesus. He said, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? We're ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Listen, we're the ones who are helping you, but he's the one who saved you. Focus on him. Number two, the deception of passive leadership. The deception of privileged leadership can lead to the deception of passive leadership, the greatest threat to the church. In spite of all the persecution that this church faced, we talked about it two weeks ago, the greatest threat to this church, the greatest threat to every church, is not vexation from without, but infiltration and the threat that comes from within. It's when pastors don't want to be controversial. It's when they don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to talk about sin because they sound judgmental. And isn't the gospel really just about love? Let's just talk about how much God loves you. Well, God does love you. He does. But you're not going to understand how amazing his grace is if you don't understand how wicked your sin is. And so we need to confront lies with the truth. The church is under attack. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And Satan knows that just as well as I do and just as well as you do. And so Satan knows what sometimes we all forget is that since he can't defeat the church by force, he's going to have to subvert it by stealth. This is what the book of Jude is all about. That we earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because Jude said certain men have crept in unawares, ungodly men who sneak in. And that leads, when we don't confront the lies and the false teaching with the truth, it leads to the third thing, the deception of polluted leadership. This is one of the great tragedies of this passage of Scripture. Look again at verse 28. Christ has purchased this church with his own blood. I know, verse 29, that after this, my departing, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock also of your own selves shall men arise. Speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after them. We don't know how many elders are here. We don't know how many pastors are, are represented here. We do know that Paul is Paul prophesies by the Holy Spirit that he's never going to see any of these guys again. Now, what's interesting is that 
he's going to come back to this city. He doesn't know it at the time because the Holy Spirit hasn't told him yet. But he's coming back to Ephesus in five years. That means five years after he says this, all five of these pastors are, all, all five, I don't, we don't know how many. There could have been 15, 50. We don't know how many. They're all gone. They're all gone. Now, some of them probably died, either from old age or sickness or persecution. Some of them undoubtedly went and planted other churches. Some of them weren't there because they went rogue. After they came out from under the discipline, the authority, the teaching of the Apostle Paul, they started to see scriptures a little differently. They began to come up with some new theologies. And as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 4, they began to get tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. Paul has to call out by name some of these men. We don't know if these guys were here on this day. But we know in 1 Timothy, Paul calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In 2 Timothy, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow, overthrow the faith of some. There are still people today, still people saying, even after Paul wrote this, oh, the resurrection has already happened. Jesus isn't coming back. The church is the resurrection. The second coming is the church. Blasphemous teaching still being taught today. Men who were taught the truth. This is one of the great tragedies in Christianity today. Pastors who started out faithful. Christian authors who started out faithful and who have erred concerning the truth. Some of whom have actually become Savage wolves, not sparing the flock. There's authors that I used to love that I no longer recommend. There are pastors that I used to podcast that I no longer listen to or want to have anything to do with because they have found themselves in these verses. A great tragedy. All of us need to defend against deception. So we're going to say some things over our time together, years, decades, Lord willing, that you may think, why is Pastor J.J. harping on that again? Why is, he, why is he so controversial? Why is he so offensive? Listen, the truth must confront the lie. That is the job of a very faithful shepherd. Follow Paul's example. Heed Paul's warning. And then let me just give you a few instructions as we look at the last final section here. Obey Paul's teaching. And let me summarize these last few verses here, 32 through 35, with these words. Work for what lasts. Our priority as a church must be to practice what we preach and to preach the right things. To defend against deception and be willing to speak truth to lies, and then to be busy and laboring for what will really matter, not just for today or tomorrow, but for all of eternity. Look again at verses 32 through 
35. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or a parable. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me give you three things as uh, we wind this message down. Number one, uh, depend upon God alone. How do I do that in practice? I trust the word of his grace. If I'm studying the scriptures thoroughly, looking for the whole counsel of God, submitting to them, then I need to trust them. It's one thing to know the scripture. It's another thing to trust what God says, to trust his promises. We started a new study on Sunday nights a couple of weeks ago on prophecy. Tonight, we're going to continue that study. I encourage you, even if you can't be here on Sunday nights, to podcast that or to check it out online. We're going to see tonight, prophecies are God's promises. Do we trust God's promises? Do we trust the word of his grace? And trust it for what? For my own personal growth? For my own eternal rewards. Listen, Paul doesn't want these pastors, again, he doesn't want them to become so privileged and entitled to think that the church rises and falls on each of them. It doesn't. We always have to point people back to the Lord. I am here to serve the Lord and and by serving the Lord to serve you. But don't become dependent on me. Don't become dependent on anyone. Don't become dependent on your favorite author. Don't become dependent on that uh, internationally famous preacher or speaker that, you know, you listen to everything that he says and every book that he or she writes. Depend upon God. I'd encourage you to have a, I, I love books. I have a lot of books in there. I have a lot of books at home. But this is the only book that really matters. This is the only book I really need. And it's the only book that you really need too. So depend on God. Trust his word. Number two, beware of ministry, envy, and rivalry. Ministry is cooperation, not competition. We're not competing with anybody here. We're not competing with other churches. Now, we're competing against churches that teach false doctrine. We are competing against them, but they're not the true church. Any church that is of like faith and doctrine, we're not competing with them. We may not agree on every, every point. We may not agree on every, uh, on every issue, but we're not in competition. I love competition. In fact, uh, I'm so competitive that I avoid competition. Um, a lot of times, especially as a pastor, it's hard to keep your testimony uh, when you are not always a good sport. And so... Uh, sometimes I just avoid competition, but I love, I love competition. I have a very competitive nature. But in ministry, it's not about who gets the most, who has the most, who achieves the most. Paul says, I didn't envy anybody. I'm only living for an audience of one. I'm only, I'm only living to serve one. And so we all need to learn how to work together. And that has application for every single one of us. I'm going to forget to praise you. I'm going to forget to thank you. And that's on me. But don't let that be on you. Don't let that translate into 
you being envious of this other person who got more praise or, or had more input. This is not a competition. And then lastly, Paul says, be productive and give. Be productive, then give. Give to those in ministry, Paul says, and give to those in need. Paul worked while he was a missionary, not because he had to. Paul says, I didn't have to do that. I'm, a, I'm an apostle. I could have said, hey, I have a right to be supported. But he said, listen, I'm going to set an example for you. I want to set an example that you understand. But notice again what Paul said. He said, I am working. Where's it at here? Verse 34 ministering unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Paul said, I am personally financing the missionaries that are traveling with me so that you will see that you need to support missionaries. So that you will see that you need to be supportive of those in ministries. I'm going to give you the example. And then also, he says, remember what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We need to be a church. We need to be families. We need to be individuals who respond to the needs that we encounter. Be productive, work hard, not so that we can have more, but so that we can give more. And not so that we can just give it to the government and and hope the government gets it where it needs to be, so that we can be intentional and personal about where we meet those needs. Now, Paul delivers this sermon, and then he gives us one last example. When he had, verse 36, spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. They all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. Let me just say this as we close in prayer, that prayer must be a priority in our church. It must be a priority. Paul does not leave without a time of sincere prayer. Prayer. A church lacking sincere, faithful prayer is a church lacking true, lasting power. If we're going to accomplish what God has called us to do, we need to practice what we preach. We need to defend against deception. We need to work for what lasts and work hard. And all of that must be bathed in faithful, sincere prayer. Let's stand as we close in prayer together. Father, we thank you so much for this incredibly powerful message that Paul gave to this group of elders. Father, I pray that as these words that your spirit inspired Luke to record for us, God, God, as we look at them this morning, God, that we would see some things in this text that applies directly to our own life, that your Holy Spirit right now is even working to show us some areas that we need to strengthen, some areas that we need to change. God, we want to make sure that the priorities of our life match the values you have set for us. And we want in all things for you to be glorified in how we live and what we do. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.